Hello, this is the Plant Book Club. Hello and welcome to the Plant Book Club. I'm Tegan and I'm here with Yoram and Ellen. And I have been informed by Yoram that I have to introduce the book <laughs> and the podcast today because apparently I chose it, which I also don't remember very clearly. So um, yeah, this month we read The Revolutionary Genius of Plants. It's by Stefano Mancuso. And I think I might have come across it on a list of books to read on a nature website but Yoram thinks that I came across it on Instagram and it's it's really likely that Yoram's memory of what I've done is better than my memory of what I did <laughs> despite us being different people living in different countries so let's say Instagram thank you very much if, if one of you recommended that we read this thank you for that um if I found it myself, no thanks to anyone. It was all me. I'm a genius. Um, but anyway, yeah, the revolutionary genius of plants is what we read this month. So, yeah, let's go. Yeah, Let's hi. discuss. Um, yeah, um, maybe we start with our expectations because I wrote down some expectations that I had when I read sort of the, the text on the back and what I knew about the author. Um, and then maybe... Like, at, at this point, I feel like you're just rubbing in how much more prepared you are than I am. This is just no, <laughs> no, to, no so. because like the whole book it deals with like the the subtitle is a new understanding of plant intelligence and behavior, and I knew from like um, an interview or something I read on the Guardian uh, with Stefano Mancuso, the author, um, that he's in in this field of neurobotany, and I found that very intriguing because on on one hand I was always a little bit skeptical but at the same time i don't want to be close-minded i want to be yeah open-minded towards new topics that i know nothing about um so i was really excited um about learning more about neurobotany what that is how that works what is the evidence in favor of of the idea that plants are intelligent and all of that so that was sort of my expectation going in there did you have any like expectation picking up the book or was it like a completely blank slate for you guys um, I think you mentioned something that we all experienced, which is we all saw the cover, right? We all have the physical books. Yeah. We all saw the cover before we read it. And it's very elegant and beautiful. And uh, like you said, I think in the last podcast episode, it's like a coffee table book, right? It has these beautiful pictures. Um, and yeah. so, I don't know. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> And that got me excited to read it honestly i love pictures <laughs> yeah that's true it's a really pretty book it's, it really is i mean definitely like the last book we read was much more like academic and this one from appearance seemed to be much more colorful and aiming for more like a popular science audience as opposed to like a more specifically academic audience this exactly this, i would say was an expectation that we had from like leaving through it but yeah otherwise yaram yeah did it meet your expectations because I can already give the spoiler, like, it didn't meet my expectations. <laughs> I, I got, well, a, I got you, a very different book from what I expected from the title, the subtitle, and the text on the back. Um, can you clarify exactly what your expectations were? Yeah, my then, expectation that was that I learned more about neurobotany, about this field, okay. this idea that plants have an intelligence, that they have a sort of, they, they lack a nervous system like animals would have, but mm -hmm. they also have a way to sense the environment, integrate the signals, and then have make intelligent decisions based on the signals around them. And I wanted to know more about this because in my understanding, um, after like years of working in plant science, 
we never discussed <laughs> the idea that plants have this sort of intelligence. Um, yeah. It's way more often um, thinking about a plant like reacts to an external stimulus and is pretty much like A to B to C way and there's no decision making. There's no intelligence as in taking in multiple inputs and then coming up with a like complex reaction to these inputs. Um, and okay. so I was really excited to learn about that. Um because yeah, and that, I know that it didn't fulfill. Yeah, it's I know that Stefano Mancuso is a little bit controversial in the field of plant science because of his idea of plant intelligence, and I wanted to. Hear oh, his that side. I didn't know, but that I could pick up from reading the book. <laughs> like after reading the book, I was like, "This guy is controversial in the field of plant biology." <laughs> like this, this came through. So yeah, um, so what I got in the book was many different like stories tales of of plants reacting to the environment but the whole idea of plant intelligence pretty much plays out only in like one or maybe two chapters um for me and that was my yeah that was the big difference between what i expected and what i got because most of the time it talks a lot about like cool adaptations that plants have but very little about the intelligence that the author suggests behind it Mm -hmm. um yeah how maybe one of you guys wants to like summarize or like tell us what the book is then actually about instead of what i expected it to be about uh yeah i would say it was a pretty wide and interesting jaunt through botany in general and the different ways that plants can be applied to the problems that we'll face in the future um Stefano, is it Mancuso? Mancuso? Yeah, Man Mancuso, I think. Stefano Mancuso is pretty optimistic about the future of the human race, which was honestly refreshing to read this month. <laughs> I found it um, shocking. <laughs> what? <laughs> I found it shocking. I was like, no, like, don't be so optimistic. Like, calm the hell down. Like, be a bit more pessimistic about this. <laughs> no, I think it, it, I, I agree with Ellen. I think it was nice for a change. Okay, but... Just quickly on that, and then Ellen, sorry. Um, there was a point where he was talking about how the population is going to like grow massively. So I think I wrote down page 93. So it's like, in 2050, there will be 10 billion people on Earth, three and a half billion more than we are today. Many are alarmed by this. And then he goes on to say, I do not belong to these ranks mm -hmm. um, because he thinks that there'll be this huge resource of more brains to solve all the problems, which to me... I don't know. Isn't that objectively alarming that we have so many, like, this is not something that you can hold an opinion on. This is like a truth. Like, if there are any youth, universal truths, there are so many people right now. Like, And then this is in contrast to something that he brings up later on. Um, it's page 153 on, on our version of the book, where he he mentions that we're going to need to have, we're going to struggle to feed the people. And he's talking about like his um, jellyfish setup, which I'm sure we'll come back to later on. He's saying we are going to have problems feeding the people. We're going to need to increase the amount of plants and, you know, their products. Isn't, isn't that part of the alarm? Surely that's... Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I think consistency in the opinions of the author... Um, it's not the strongest suit in the book. I had a couple of things where I thought, um, like he on one on one page he says one thing, and then a couple of pages later he says something different. Um, and so I think that just fits the the theme that he he picks his the the arguments to suppose his um, his opinion or support his opinion. Um, yeah, he picks them as he pleases. Uh, I think one of the biggest notes that I I made was cherry picking. Um, 
<laughs> of of evidence and i think that that goes into that direction but sorry yeah. ellen i derailed you though you're saying you like that it's optimistic and then yeah. i just like cut through that <laughs> yeah i mean i think i would say something along similar lines which is in some of these subjects as a journalist i'm pretty knowledgeable and in some of the subjects i know i'm not knowledgeable and uh there are a few books i've read similar to this the one that stands out in my head the most strongly is Sapiens. I don't know if you've read that. No. Where it's like a history of all of humanity. And in some parts, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And in some parts, I was like, mm, I actually know a lot about this subject and know that this isn't really that right. <laughs> so then my question is, and- the parts that you found cool were the parts you didn't have the knowledge on. Is that yeah, exactly. Like which I is wrote, concerning. Plants have I wrote plants have eyes question mark. Question mark, <laughs> question mark, question mark. And was like, must ask Tegan and Yoram about this because <laughs> um, no. Yeah, so that was also like part of that comes into a different argument, which was like he really liked embracing old stuff. Mm-hmm. That was that was one of the feels like so the plants have eyes, it's like an idea that came you know, I don't know, hundreds of years ago now. Um, and there were a few more when, like, there was one point where he started talking about, uh, let me have a look. There was, like, this democracy section where it got very political for a while and talking about how plants are actually not individuals. They're kind of a collective whole, like, swarms of animals. And I was like, where is this idea coming from? Why is he suddenly just like, he spent his whole time talking about how amazing plants are. And now he's arguing that they're cool because they're like animals, which has been completely the opposite of the whole book. And then on the next page, it's like, oh yeah, some old guy had this theory 200 years ago. And I really like it. And I was like, okay, that's why, because he wants to unite with this old guy's theory. But it, yeah. it just didn't make sense to me that he was suddenly arguing that plants are cool because they're more like animals. Whereas the whole, for me, the whole premise of the book is, Plants are better than animals, which I can get behind that that statement. But also, like, animals basically suck and plants are doing everything right and animals doing everything wrong, which I have some comments on, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I fully agree. And just to, like, finish the thought on the plants have eyes thing, like, he, he brings up the idea that uh, people used um, plant leaves as micro lenses, like, a uh, hundred years ago or something. Um and based on that one single thing where if, if you know anything about like basic f- photography if you do if you have a pinhole you can create a camera with it so you just need mm. something that has a small opening something that has a small opening are plant leaves that have stomata on them that are like microscopic holes in the leaf so if you prepare them right you have a surface with lots of tiny holes and if you put a film in the right distance to that you can get like tiny pictures because you have these tiny lenses um, that doesn't mean at all that plants have eyes or the ability to see because how would they they don't have a retina or anything that can sense the light in a sort of two-dimensional array like we have our retina well, in our I mean, eyes so that's, they- that's not the problem there it's that i mean there is the potential for like plant-like things to sense light like that's not impossible yeah no but he says that they actually have eyesight because he brings up the whole example that there's this plant that mimics other plants shape uh, of the leaves and he says (laughs) that's because they see what they look like and then they imitate that they make the intelligent decision to imitate that and there's just no evidence whatsoever presented in the book that supports that apart from the idea that 100 years ago somebody put like used a leaf like a pinhole lens 
to, mm. to make a weird looking photograph. Well, well, but that that's more problematic to me because I mean it's it's a way out there concept. This plants have eyes. When, the way he's talking about it is is not is not working for me. But there are ways that organisms that are very simple and like plants can have the ability to sense. I mean, obviously yeah. plants can sense light. It's what they do. They sense light and they photosynthesize. So you could go off that argument. And I mean, also clammy, like you can, there are arguments for plants have a form of rudimentary vision, but he didn't choose to use those arguments. He used the, because bits of them are kind of concave and convex and kind of like can reflect things like lens, which is, that's that's what bugged me. Like there is a scientific argument there, but he chose not to use the scientific argument. He chose to use the some old guy once said it, and I really like this theory argument, which is problematic, honestly. But a good summary of most of the book, to be honest. <laughs> some yeah, old guy. I felt kind of a I felt kind of a similar way about the one part of the book where I felt like I did actually like know a little bit, which is the end, because I covered uh, the like, witch. Sorry. The, the last chapter, like Growing Plants in Space. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Which I covered for Popular Science, uh, the American research project, which is called PONS. Um, and yeah, I felt a little bit frustrated that he talked about, you know, Matt Damon and the Martian and was <laughs> like, we can grow potatoes on Mars and uh, kind of the the takeaway that I got from my coverage of uh, plants on the International Space Station was that they're definitely not there yet. Mm. <laughs> and um, I felt like, yeah, some of it was a little premature. But then I went back and read the chapter and I was like, he doesn't actually spend that much time talking about what's going on on the International Space Station in terms of growing plants. Like he mentions they can grow lettuce and zinnias um but i was like i can't actually argue against any of the things that are in this chapter because it's quite vague you know like it's a little like in science journalism we call it like hand wavy where like yeah plants have eyes and then you just like wave your hands a little bit about how that actually applies there's like two different things here like one is I have a theory hand wavy and not going into depth because you want to keep it like popular science and not go too much into like the, the mechanisms. And that makes me sad as a scientist, but I can kind of respect that as a, as a choice to make the novel involve more storytelling, which I think actually he did very well here. But the other thing is when you say there is evidence and then you don't say the evidence and you just say, and this is proved like, Clearly. So like he says, here's a theory, here's a theory, there's been some tests and therefore this is definitely the case. And he did that quite a lot throughout the book where he didn't provide me with any evidence. He just like stated an idea and then said, this is the most likely idea. Mm -hmm. And this was the the plant that imitates other plants that Yoram just mentioned with, with the camera and with the, the, the vision. I actually, I remember that paper coming out. Um, I covered that paper in Journal Club in my old work. It was like, a very discussed topic. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who have a lot of skepticism about this. Um, and yeah, in the paper, they come up with two 
ideas that are both quite likely. One is that the plants can basically smell other plants with the volatiles, and the other is that they get the genes from the other plants by something called horizontal gene transfer, which means they basically steal genetic information from the plants they're on. And he was like, both of these are unlikely. Here's my even more unlikely idea. It's very clear that this is the most likely thing. And it's like, but you gave me no evidence. You just like said your thing and then said it's very clear that mine is the most likely. Mm -hmm. That's not a rational argument. That's just the fact that you're the one who's writing the book and therefore get the last word. Like this, this made me, yeah, mildly annoyed, <laughs> upset. Yeah, and both of those ideas are cool, right? Like so cool. Like he could have talked about both of those, and the book would still be amazing. Like it's a really like plants are amazing, and the book is very readable because he makes that clear, you know. And it's like. It's just not quite there on the science, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, that is something that we should say as a really strong pro here. Like, we complained a lot about the last book for not having enough of a story. And this is the opposite. It's got a lot of story, which is really, like, it's fun to read. There's personal experience and there's experience that not only puts the story in different contexts, but he also brings it into his own context of his lab work and, um, you know, what drove him. And this does bring some interest, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I also wrote for, on, the, on the, the good things that I liked about the book is that it's very pleasing to read. And also he mentions so many very interesting plants that I wasn't aware of. And mm. like we in our podcast and the other thing that we do, uh, we also like we try to cover exciting plants. So we've we've seen our fair share of like weird plants. And now I have even more um, that I found through this book. And that that's something that I actually really enjoyed there. Um so um yeah that's definitely a plus like it's very like entertaining and easy to read i think tegan you read it in just like a day or two um i took a little bit longer but i uh, also like went went through it very quickly because it's very pleasing to read oh he acknowledged how the science got done in a lot of interesting ways that i think we complained about in the last book yeah as in like he like on page eight, he talked about how the lab assistant who painstakingly like dropped all the mimosapudicas like wasn't mentioned and like his name is lost to history, which I loved yeah. because a lot of the times scientists just like gloss over that part, like all the very boring work that grad students did. <laughs> I actually, I've, I've took that down as a quote because I think it's a really good example of his storytelling, because he said, a student whose name we do not know and who was obviously accustomed to the extravagant demands of his teacher did not bat an eye. And it's like, clearly, if you don't know this person's name, you have no idea whether they batted an eye or not. Like, this is definitely taking some um, artistic license with the storytelling, but it's very pleasing. It's, yep. it's an enjoyable read because he's doing these these things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um so I just wanted to say about the book in general, um, maybe for our listeners to get an idea that it's uh, uh, separated into nine different chapters and every chapter deals with just one specific aspect of plants in general. Um, uh, like uh, it's the first one is about memories without a brain, um, which is, I think, the closest that actually talks about plant intelligence. And then the mm -hmm. other ones are about um, moving plants, how they mimic other plants, how they come make decisions, which is the democracy thing that we talked about. Um, and then in the end, he talks a little bit about some projects that he's been 
and involved in that have less and less to do actually with plant science and more um, with his own portfolio of things that he's been involved in. Um, but, but I would argue they had there was like a clear narrative pathway, like we're going um, like yeah through time and also like to more application. So I, I didn't I wasn't angry about the the narrative no, no. flow there. No, no. The narrative flow is it's definitely there and it it, it works well. Um, to me it was just like in, in the last like three or four chapters I missed more plant science because it was much more about the projects like he he built a barge that was sitting on the water to grow plants and de like desalinate seawater and then so it was much more about the technicalities of um having a barge flowing uh, floating in seawater and then have plants growing in it and uh, the chapter about space for example for me it was much more about his story and his excitement to be involved in space research and how he's been in a centrifuge and and things like that um oh no uh, not in a centrifuge in like the the zero g airplane things like the parabol mm -hmm. flights um mm -hmm. the vomit comets um it talked yep. a lot about this and it's sort of interesting to have his like in the last book we complained that we didn't see enough of the author in there and it's nice here that it's a very personal book but at the same time as i said i, I expected plant science and i got the retelling of him going into the, the airplane that gives him or zero g for a couple of minutes <laughs> um so that's where like some frustration came for me, even though it's just because of the different buildup of, of expectations. If I would have gone in with no expectations or different expectations, this chapter would have would have had uh, would have annoyed me much less. I think my my editing comment would is that this could be fixed by just moving the references into as footnotes in the um, chapters because there are actually references at the book where he he is talking about some science and then if you go to the very back you can see a list of of actual scientific articles and scientific um like lab experiments and so on but it's not clear when you read a paragraph that there is an associated experiment and that would be for me enough where it's like okay he's not going to go into it but i can easily go and read more for myself and it would give me kind of more confidence in what he was saying but it would also ease up the feeling that he was being too light on the science because i would know that hey the science is there. I just have to go and, and read it myself. Oh, my takeaway from this book is that it's an excellent primer uh, for a really broad swath of plant biology. Like if you're someone who's interested in plants, you don't have your PhD, <laughs> but uh, you're just like, I want to know a lot of different cool things about plants in like a really easy to read book. Like, this is a pretty solid book for that. And, uh, like, if you want to discuss more, like, if you're interested in a particular part, you can go and do your own, like, deep dive into that particular subject in terms of, like, the science, you know? Mm. Mm. Although I, I have... Um I have the feeling that especially the scientific side is something that I would people want uh, like I want would want people not to take away from this because um I found that there is often really evidence missing or it's on the border of of pseudoscience um the way he cites like we said he cites a lot of old people and um when i went through through the book um he cites people like da vinci or goethe who's a german poet who also dabbled a little bit in science but mostly was a poet lamarck who was uh, opposing <laughs> to uh darwin's evolutionary theories um i'm sorry sorry do you mean jean baptiste pierre anton de monet chevalier de lamarck is it that one yeah because i think it's a, it's I, I heard kind of a book. hero 
<laughs> Only his full name can truly suggest the importance of his activities as a scientist. That's what I read from this book, Yarm. And for the people who forgot their high school biology, Lamarck was the one who believed <laughs> Jean that... Jean-Baptiste Pierre and Chevalier de Lamarck. I will not let you say the name in a short term. Mis Mr. L thought <laughs> that, uh, that giraffes got their long neck because they really wanted to get a longer neck. They were um, looking at a tree that was taller than them and then they stretched their neck and so the, that <laughs> intention to have a longer neck made that the next generation had a longer neck which is completely the opposite of what um, Darwin said and also what we believe now in, in evolutionary theory that is the, the ones that didn't reach the leaves died and the ones that reached the leaves could like get to the next um, generation and therefore slowly were selected for a longer neck and um having it's quite early in the book actually that he praises Lamarck like this and if you if you see the <laughs> rest of the book through the through the lens of somebody who adores Lamarck it makes a lot of sense because very often he calls evolutionary adaptation uh, intelligence of the plants as if the plants chose to uh, be to have a selective pressure pushing them in a certain direction yeah that's that's something we have to segue into discussing the intent of the plant that, that was too much for me. So one really good example was um, he was talking about lentils, which is an important crop, and how there is something called vetch, which grows with lentils, um, and vetch is a weed. And he was saying, well, actually, vetch would get thrown away from the lentils. People could easily see that the seeds were different, so they threw away the seeds and they wouldn't carry um, the vetch. But vetch got smart on this and started making its seeds smaller so that it could like <laughs> slide in there with the lentils. And then humans... like. Its aim was that humans wouldn't pick it up and throw it away, but also that it would hitchhike onto the deliberate um, movement around the world of lentil as a crop source. So Vetch had two aims. It made itself smaller to hide, but it also wanted to hide so that it could be distributed, which... No, absolutely not. This is evolution. If you only leave the small seeds in there, after time, the population is going to make smaller and smaller seeds. This is like selective pressure, good and proper, old school. So the idea of like Vetch having... <laughs> This desire to travel the world in a human backpack, like, that's made me very uncomfortable as, as a plant biologist. Like, and then the second thing was, was similar to that was um, the idea of, like, drugs like caffeine and nicotine. And again, his argument that, like, oh, some people think that these, like, caffeine, nicotine, they're originally produced by the plant to try and deter herbivores. But I think they knew that they were going to be addictive and that they knew that they would, like by being useful and addictive to humans, they would get spread through the world. And it's like, no, like, yeah. like tobacco is very, very poisonous to humans. Like it's a bad thing to eat tobacco. It's only that we happen to dry the, the leaves and cure the leaves and process them that we can smoke tobacco. And even then it's causing us cancer. But like, this was, the plant did not foresee that we would work out how to harvest, cure and like produce tobacco. No, like I just... I cannot get on board and like we have to roast and then grind the coffee. Like yeah. No, that that made me quite upset as you can potentially tell from my tone. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have a small note on that. Did y'all notice that our buddy of uh, Avala from the last book was also in this one? No, I didn't notice no. that. Yeah, the botanist that was discussed uh in Oh my gosh, I can't even remember the name of that book. Fruit no. from the Sands. The last one yeah, fruit from the Fruit of the Sands. The the uh, botanist that Stalin killed. Oh, this is on page sixty. I did. I read he that. Was and in I was the like, last book. I've heard this name somewhere before. How have I heard this name? But I, I couldn't place it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, he was in the last book. Uh, and it said that this giant of agricultural science and genetics sentenced to starve in to death in prison by Joseph Stalin, ironically as a scapegoat for the Soviet famine of World War II, is now completely forgotten. And I was like, mm, <laughs> is he forgotten? Robert Spengler III had something to say about that. <laughs> He's not forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, on, the, on the same argument as, as Tegan's, my least favorite uh, thing of, of intended, like, constructed plant intelligence is the capsicum. This idea that um, chilies, oh, yeah. because they, he makes the case that um, the the capsaicin, the, the, the compound that makes chili spicy, um, is addictive. Um, he starts with, like, this whole story, which is very nicely told, but from a scientific point, uh, um that people who really enjoy eating chilies that they are addicted to the flavor of chili. And this is intentionally done by the plant. And then he goes um, and says that the plants actively became more and more spicy, had more and more of this compound in them, um, and creates this whole case that um, this is why we now eat chili across the world, because it's so addictive, and that's that's according to the plan of the, of the plant. Um, which to me, like he makes a similar case with wheat before that, but wheat has a very long evolutionary history together with humans where mm. I could kind of see this thing constructed. But Chile has only been very a, a couple of hundred years um, in sort of the hands of most humans. Before that, it was just in South America with some of the people native to that area. Um, but this whole idea that Chile evolved to be spread because it made human uh, humans addicted to it... Um, is so insane because it's it's just a couple of hundred years that it was brought from the colonies um, to Europe and then across uh, distributed across the world, um, and this is just not an evolutionary scale. You have very little adaptation, and th the whole thing. Then he has a list of all of the different varieties and how much they increased in spiciness. This is all selective human breeding. This is not. Mm. This is not sort no, of... No, 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 but Yoram, Yoram, the plants, they controlled the people yeah. to select it because that's how intelligent... The, that's what you're missing. Like, because be, to, to be truly intelligent, you don't have to like be capable of fixing carbon. You have to actually also be like manipulative and control people. That yeah. is the, the take-home message. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, this was my example of, of a completely constructed idea of intelligence that goes against everything that I know from science and breeding and plant evolution um and yeah that also got me a little bit upset i i, I wrote some like strong notes with a lot of cursing uh in this chapter um because yeah I, it's it's just it just doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> Yoram, you just have to accept the chili overlords yeah, they control us all it's king ghost pepper <laughs> yeah um, I wanted to ask you guys how you went with the Latin names. Like, how was your Latin? Because I found a few parts in the book where it said Latin name of a plant and then as its name indicates and then explained a feature of this plant. And I was like, my Latin is just not. So uh, here's an example. Um, Mimosa pudica, which is the touch-me-not plant. Um, yeah, it is an unusual and elegant plant that, as its name indicates, gently closes its leave. Yeah. Is pudica is to close? Is that is that what's happening here? I like, don't know. <laughs> I'm I'm not gonna lie, I just took his word on that one. Yeah, same. <laughs> okay, then page twenty, we're talking about a dandelion. So dandelion is tarak tara tarasacum? Officionale. Which 
as can be inferred from its scientific name, is a very widespread plant whose medicinal properties have been known since antiquity. <laughs> and here I'm again lost. Like one of those two names, Taraxum or Officinale, means that it's either widespread and or it has medicinal properties and or that those medicinal properties have been known since antiquity. And I'm just like, yeah. I don't think it's fair that you expect me to understand Latin. Like this is not. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, I also, I pretty much ignored that, um, that he wrote like this, but yeah, it also didn't make any sense for me. Like it was not relatable to me. I mean, and the problem with the things that we've talked about, that we've noticed about the scientific inaccuracies of this book is that we can't really take his word for that. And like, none of us are uh, linguists. And so we don't know about the etymology of this well enough to fact check it, you know? And so we just have to take his word for it. And like, we know that that's not really enough. (laughs) And so we would have to go through like a Google search, you know? Yeah. And I'm Googling it now. And like Pudica from the Mimosa, Pudica means shy or bashful. So that's the link, but yeah, yeah, I I don't like to Google necessarily while I'm reading a book, like (laughs) mid book. Yeah, but talking about the Mimosa experiment, I also uh, took some notes there um, <laughs> because one of my other critiques of this is that whenever he talks about his way of doing science, I find it very poor scientific practice um, because in, in this case, he says um, that there is this ancient experiment and uh, he doesn't say that they want to recreate it to see if it's correct or, or wrong, like if the... Like, have a hypothesis that they can falsify instead he says like we just had to come up with an experiment that would prove that this was right um Mm. and maybe it's just in the storytelling that he uses these words like this but if this is really his scientific approach that he says we have to design an experiment to prove that something is correct it's just not the correct way to do science and then obviously in his experiment in his words he proved that this was correct um but with this setup, I I am not trusting his evidence, um, and so yeah, that's that's why this this b- created doubts in me for a lot of the scientific analysis that he did because it felt like he he has an explanation in mind and then finds experiments that support that um, often hundreds, one hundred fifty, two hundred years ago. And then leaves it at that. And there's very little to convince me that these things are actually true. Like as a scientist who, who likes to have, when, when I read a paper, after every sentence, there is a citation it's, that shows me where this, this claim is based on. And yeah, this is just not the case here. One for like an editing reason, but on the other hand, also for the way, like whenever he, he chose to cite people. By the way, he only cited men unless uh, no. he talked about people working in his lab. There were no, a couple of that's female not, names. Is that true, Jan? I, um, maybe I missed one or two to him, but he mostly cited Same like old so. men that are de- dead for 100 years or so. Um, and then no, sometimes he I, cited women, but these were people who worked for him in the lab. Um. Okay, but that's okay. That's a different thing, but like the poor I would say there's two different issues here because I think the the reason he's mostly actually I think his modern collaborators they had a nice balance of sexes, but I think yeah he's citing people who were very very old and dead and that then they are old white men because yeah very mm-hmm. old dead scientists that we know about tend to be old white men. I mean, as as a like drinking game, if you take a shot every time Leonardo or um <laughs> what's his name Jean Baptiste something 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 Monsieur Lamarck come up this. 
makes for a lot of entertainment, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but don't do that. Um, you'll end up in the ER very quickly, <laughs> I think. But, I mean, that is one of the, yeah, this... There's a certain set of arguments that people use to justify things without using scientific evidence. And one of them is like the argument to antiquity, right? It's like, this has been a thing for thousands of years and therefore it must be right. And this this does always make me anxious of like, when people say, oh, somebody knew this many years ago. I was like, okay, yes, but show show the, yeah. show the scientific modern ed- evidence, please. That's what I'm, I'm going to need. Yeah. Mm. So, um... Yeah, I have just, I, I don't want to rant the, the entire time. Um, there's just one thing that I want to bring up, maybe that leads us into the last chapters that uh, talk more about bionics, that in the beginning he makes a strong statement about the fact that plants are not like um, animals or machines or things that we think about that are um, sort of modularized in terms of they have a central brain and or in a computer like a CPU and that's connected with other things like computer components or organs and um, this together works as sort of a machine or a body to do things and plants are not like that. This is a claim that he makes a couple of times mm. and says this, this is where the intelligence comes from because there's no central organ that can be damaged. There's sort of um, capabilities spread out throughout the plant which I think is an interesting thought when, when looking at plants. Um, but it's always to the point of fetishizing the plants right he says things like plant species are so diverse they might as well be aliens and plants have nothing in common with us where us is animals um it's it's bizarre um it's like they're 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 so different from anything we can understand and that this is quite like quite extreme as a point of view i would say and then in the end um he built a robot that mimics roots um because he Mm -hmm. thinks that like distributed robots on on a planet on a distant planet like mars um they can then use mechanisms learned from roots to dig into the soil and then do measurements in the soil instead of having a drill um and there he builds a plant like a, a, a robotic root with all of the things that you have in a robot. Like he has a central intelligence there with a microcontroller. He has the actuators and all of the things that he built up throughout the book, how stupid they are and how smart plants are for not having those. As soon as he wants to build a sort of a, a artificial plant, he falls he back to the things. He makes it more animal-like. Yeah, falls back to the things that he previously rejected and, and made me as the reader think that these are stupid concepts and that plants are better for not having them um yeah i mean also on that there's at the start of that chapter he's talking about how we've introduced robotics and there's kind of this bias towards wanting robots that look like humans but also even the non-human like robots we have they are based around yeah as Sligram just said this central brain um with peripheral bits which is like an animal model not a plant model um but he also makes the claim quite early on that no one is taking inspiration from the plant world when it comes to developing, you know, robots, but also other futuristic things, which is firstly, he's already just had a chapter talking about how we have taken inspiration from the plant world when it comes to like building these beautiful structures. But secondly, I mean, solar cells, like the entire idea of of solar energy is surely a robot that mimics plant. I mean, surely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bold yeah. claim. It's a very bold claim. I think I put the phrase bold cl- claim in many times in my notes. I was just like, very bold, very bold. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting book. You know, it reminds me a lot of reading like Malcolm Gladwell or something where you're like, oh, this is cool. 
And then you like read the critiques of it and you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Where it's like, talk to your local plant scientist before you tell your friends after reading this that uh, plants have eyes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's a good idea. Like, I, I think many of the mechanisms in there are generally interesting. Um, there is a, t a tale about a seed that sort of spirals itself into the ground like a mm. miniature drill. And that's really exciting. Um, he does very little to explain like the mechanistics behind it a little bit. He, he goes into that. But I actually looked then up um, uh, this, this seed, this plant, and found some papers about this. This is actually really interesting. So if you take it, it that as a sort of jumping off point, finding like the interesting bits in there, and then doing your own research on the science, um, I think that's that's the best way to me to read this book. Okay, but that's, that's a problem, right? So this book is not aimed towards scientists. It's yeah. aimed as a popular science book. So I really like how exciting it makes plant science. I really like that it, it gives, I mean, it's got a really strong point about how important plants are, maybe a little bit exaggerated, you know, plants, plants are the best. Um, animals are dumb, plants are smart, but it, it really is trying to enforce the idea that plants are important. And that, that's, that's great. I mean, plant blindness is a problem. I think we can all agree. It also has a lot of parts in it which make you be interested in, in plants and want to know more. But is that enough to balance out the fact that it's also making bold statements which don't have necessarily scientific credibility? I mean, as far as like net neutral, net evil, net good, like what is where does this then come as a book? Because it has some great things, but if if you're going to assume that most people are just going to read this book and believe everything in the book that's not necessarily the best thing. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, <laughs> yeah, do you have anything else about the contents of the book? Or shall we come towards the, the verdict? I want you guys to talk... Yeah, I think we're ready for the verdict. I want you to tell me what you thought about the, de the democracy in the bees chapter. My notes there were that he explains a little bit about like swarm intelligence that we find in animals and, and insects. And then he just says it's the same in plants with no evidence for it being the case. And I'm a big fan of swarm intelligence. It's, it's one of the most fascinating things in biology to me that you have a lot of non-connected small units, be it like birds in a big flock or be it ants in an in a ant colony or bees. And I find that really exciting, um, this idea and studying that and so on. Um, and... Like I'm not against the idea that plants use similar principles, but I would I'm just not convinced with the evidence because there's none that he presented that this is actually the case that plants, um, like he he brings this example that bees, for example, when they swarm out and then they come back, um, each bee tries to convince the others that they found a good spot, and then some bees fly to the things that the first bees showed, and the more bees when they return, then they join in into sort of the call for this is a very good spot and the more bees you have pointing towards a specific spot um, eventually the entire swarm will decide to go into that direction and I thought that's that's a very exciting phenomenon in, in insects and um, then he just says yeah it's, it's similar in plants but I don't recall any evidence suggesting that it's true um, yeah so that's, that's my stance on it like, I'm, I'm still on the point of citation needed like I wish I want it to be true. I would be excited about it to be true, but I haven't seen an ev any evidence that it actually is true. Um, so for for the verdict, um, I 
or maybe just before that, I, I just want to mention a study that recently came out in eLife that I found. It came out on June 23rd, 2020. eLife is a scientific journal. Um, and it's called Lack of Evidence for Associative Learning in Pea Plants. It's from Casey Markel uh, from the University of California, Dav uh, Davis, United States. Um, and there he tried to replicate a study that was done by Gagliano et al., um, where they suggested that plants have the intelligence to connect two different inputs and they had sort of a typical y-shaped maze on one side there was light and on the other side there wasn't light and plants want to grow towards the light usually um, and they couldn't see from the starting position where the light was so they sort of had to feel their way into the two directions um, and then they associated wind with light so they tried to to have the plants learn that when they, they, they're blown on, they're blown on from the side where the light is. And so they train plants to sort of go to connect wind and light and also to connect no wind and light. And then they um, put them in chambers and they just blew wind on them um, to see if they follow the wind or go against the wind to because they assume that there's light or no light. Um, that was the setup and that was the previous study that was published and now somebody tried to replicate that study and failed and couldn't find that and, and therefore um, they very carefully tried to mimic every little technical detail of the original study and still couldn't see that plants can actually connect the two inputs, wind and light, and actually learn this behavior. And I just wanted to put that in there because of, we complain so much about the lack of scientific evidence. This is very recent scientific evidence that goes against the idea that plants have this sort of associative learning, this intelligence to con connect several inputs in a way um, that are not related and then can learn from this and then later recall the thing that they have learned to react accordingly. So you can't do a Pavlov uh, experiment on plants, uh, essentially. And I just wanted to put that out there because I found it while researching other stuff and I thought this would be a good fit for this particular book. Um, oh, thank you. So yeah, for the book, uh, for, for the verdict, what, what do you guys think as a total... Uh, how would you rate it? How would you summarize it? Uh, <laughs> I think I would give it three and a half hemlock leaves out of five for readability. It's fascinating. He's a very interesting guy and he tells his life story in a very compelling way. Uh, you just have to go into it knowing that some of the science is controversial and you should ask Tegan and Yoram before you <laughs> take any of his claims for face value at face value. I mean, we're not the absolute experts on this. It's just... <laughs> Which sort of brings up a problem for me because I, I want to... I don't want to dismiss like con controversial claims outright. Um, <laughs> like I think it's important in science to, to be open-minded and to like wonder if a different explanation could be true than the one that you believe in currently. Like um, global warming. There's like those three out of 97 scientists who think that it actually isn't caused by us. So we should totally consider whether they might have a point. Let's give them equal <laughs> airtime. Yeah. <laughs> Sick burn, Tegan. <laughs> Yoram and I had like an extended discussion on this on our last podcast, which I, I hope it, like Yoram then had to spend hours and hours editing out because we just talked about it for like I cut what, it 40 minutes. a little bit. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, Tegan what is your verdict um four ruptured chloroplasts out of five so <laughs> when you isolate chloroplasts um it's quite a tricky process chloroplasts they like to break 
So you have to be very gentle. And you basically do all this procedure and you're like stroking them with a brush to try and make sure they don't get hurt while you resuspend them in a liquid. And it's a whole thing. And then at the end, you basically put them in a cylinder and you separate them based on density. And you have two different parts. One is where the dead chloroplasts come and one where the ones which you haven't managed to screw up with a paintbrush come. Um, and the first time you do this, you get a really nice thick green band, which is your chloroplasts. And then you realize that that's sitting where all of the broken chloroplasts are. <laughs> so for this book, I would say it was super readable. It was really enjoyable. It was really pretty. But I'm very concerned about the fact that um, there's some scientific issues, which I think is, is a bit damaging if it's aimed at as a popular science book. So I kind of want it to be assisted by a foreword, but I don't think that can be done. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not sure if I would recommend that the public re reads it. I think it's... It's fascinating, but I'm I'm concerned to a certain degree. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I wrote down um, that the book is essentially about the very hidden genius of Mancuso and his ideas and projects. Oh my gosh! Because <laughs> because it's uh, it's it's so much a showcase of the things that he's done. Like the last chapters are like how he ventured into space, how he built this thing that grows lettuce on the seawater, um, and so much more about like how great he is as a researcher and so much less about how great plants are uh, in terms of intelligence um like yeah the, um yeah the whole sea barge chapter for example has nothing to do with how plants deal with that with like the extreme of of salt water for example yeah, it's I just also about have some notes if you're adding like 10% salt water each time and the plants are not getting rid of that salt which they probably can't because it's lettuce you're going to build up a lot of salt in that soil really quickly. Yeah, and also I have notes. <laughs> also, he presents this whole thing of growing lettuce as a solution to for for world hunger when lettuce literally has zero calories. So, <laughs> like all of the vertical farms, the, the farming in barges, all of them grow crops that have no nutritional value. They maybe taste nice or have a nice crunch to them, but they have no nutritional value. So, and then you should just eat a jellyfish. Um, so yeah also my, my one bullet point is just like don't read it um, my, no, my rating is one out of five Darwin's orchids um, that Darwin wow. used to study evolution because I that's so harsh Yoram no I really there were so many points where I was just like this is just this is harmful um, because then you like people who don't study biology they, they read these things and then they, they you do like a, a psychom event somewhere and then they come to you and they say like I read in a book that plants actually have eyes I read in a book that chilies uh, want like domesticated humans so they spread chilies across the world and then I you have like to spend this I had somebody tell me that time. water molecules had feelings yeah and then you have to spend this whole time correcting that and that's why I, f I feel it doesn't really help in the great scheme of, of things so the ranking system, would you say, like, if you had to rank it not based on whether other people should should rank it or should read it, but whether you would be happy to read it again? I would not want to read it again. You would not want to read it again? <laughs> no. Interesting. No. Uh, the, yeah, it, it's for me, it strikes a very particular chord in myself that makes me angry about, like, very wild claims with no backup. Um, but... I mean, if that would be fiction, maybe. If like, the whole thing would be labeled as, like, uh, wouldn't it be nice if or what what could be when um that that would be maybe more interesting to me uh if i read it from like a very sci-fi point of view um 
but it doesn't it's it's not the framing of the book i said so like i found that there were so many things that i wrote down notes of like i should go and research this i found that really and in like there's lots of things that will come up on our blog and in our podcast i'm sure in the next few months based on something we read here and then we went and researched and it, that was like a very enjoyable yeah no that's that's true i think there's something to be said for getting in the door and this book does allow you that versus the last book that we read it's almost impossible to read and so it's it's not going to get anyone in that psychom event to harass Yoram <laughs> about how plants how water has feelings that's a good point um in the first place you know mm-hmm. no I, i i understand what you're saying i can't work out if if in the end it comes up net positive or net negative as far as like the the good for science communication i think yeah the the enthusiasm is really good the misrepresentation of scientific fact is very ungood so i'm not sure like in the end what the the overall balance is do you believe now that our plants are that much smarter than other organisms and that we can learn a lot from plants for all Especially behavior? humans like humans are idiots because they keep on getting enslaved by plants in all these different ways <laughs> like plants knew <laughs> that we were going to develop a way to grind and roast coffee beans and that we'd get really into having nine to five office jobs and then we'd need something to wake us up in the morning And they knew that and they planned for that. And that's why like, coffee is now, it's not even grown all over the world. I mean, the dead beans are sent to the places of the world, but it's actually still only grown mostly in South and Central America, right? So, but I don't know. The plants probably have a long-term plan and they're going to space. Like that's, that is the future. <laughs> the smartest plants will go to space. So we'll only be eating like chili peppers and coffee and what was the other thing? Tobacco. Vetch. Vetch. This, um... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, veg. The imposter grain, yeah. I would have liked to see a ranking of the different intelligent of different plants. Like, number one intelligent is the ones with addictive substances. Number two is the ones that just, like, have seeds that look a little bit like the other seeds. Um, yeah. Yeah, for having read, like, both the last two books we read, I still have such not a good understanding of, like, how we, why we eat the grains we eat. Like, I feel like I <laughs> <laughs> Our next, next book should be about that because <laughs> I've heard it like two different ways and I still don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Um, there's one thing that I just wanted to mention um, before we close this book for good. Um, is it has a lot of pictures in it, uh, which mm. usually is, is quite nice, but I felt that they added very little and some of them were of very poor quality. Like sometimes the What? opening pictures of the chapters, um, like. You're on me being a snob again. No, actually, I, I, found, I, I, I took that. I, I mean, I took that input from somebody else on, I think, on Amazon in a review, and then I looked at it. And for example, the very first picture, like of this tree in the beginning, it's very low resolution. It's like not, it's not print ready resolution. And very often, when it comes to the actual illustrations of the plants, um, for example, this mimic plant that that fakes its shape according to the plants around it, um, it would be amazing to see that on a photo, but then you just see a picture of the plant with okay, its non-shaped, non shaped non uh, altered leaves. So you can't it, put that on Mancuso because there were problems getting those photos even in the original publication <laughs> based okay. on that plant. So that's not his fault. That's a question about the biology itself. Okay, but there were other cases as well where like he describes an interesting effect and then the picture next to it doesn't really show the effect. Uh, it shows like a more general illustration. At one point it's just a picture of a gecko, for example, and he doesn't really talk about But geckos. Look at Yeah, what? how nice is that lizard? Like, yeah, Ellen and I are literally beautiful. showing the same lizard to Yoram. Like, yeah. and this is an argument. Personally, I love the gecko pictures. It's, it's so beautiful. <laughs> like, yeah. 
it's, it's technically not, not great, but it doesn't it doesn't add anything to the storyline, and that was my. Yoram, it adds a gecko. What are you talking about? It doesn't add anything except for an entire gecko that is beautiful. Like okay. it's a charismatic gecko, Yoram. Okay, I'm, I I see how I'm wrong there. Um, oh wait, it has an explanation. The Felsuma ornata is a small gecko endemic to uh, how do you Mauritius? To Mauritius. 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 That acts as a pollinator for many plant species on the island. Yeah. I, so they're manipulating, the plants are manipulating this gecko <laughs> to do their bidding. I do like that it's called the revolutionary genius of plants and the spiny images of a bumblebee, not of a plant. I found that quite funny. Like, <laughs> yeah, true. When you pick up the book from your bookcase, you're like, oh, it's about bumblebees. I see. That's that's how it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, so. I, like, I like the images. I, I especially like the kind of old um, botanical sketch kind of. Yeah. stuff and the photographs of victorian children sitting on giant leaves made me very happy so i would yeah <laughs> oh, yeah i love that part and too. i liked him floating in space as well like he was just like like the final images of him floating in, in like that made me happy yeah i think if you read it as his memoir it's very compelling and interesting yeah. Yeah. we could just if we if we own a bookshelf we would a bookshop we would just put it in a different section right yeah, fiction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Or like religion or spirituality or something where it's like, where you can claim things without supporting them with evidence. <laughs> if, if anybody in our audience who, who listens to us has, list, uh, has read the book as well in the past maybe or in the preparation in the, for, for this episode, I would really much like to hear your thoughts or their thoughts on um, the stuff that we said. Like, I sometimes feel I'm like too much of a of a Grinch for these things that I try to look for the negative <laughs> yeah, in are. there. But whenever I write up the things, I start with the good things and I try like I don't start writing about the bad things before I have a couple of things that I like about the book. I really try to be positive, um, but this time I found it really hard. I mean, you say that, but you just shut on a gecko. Like you just complained. Of, how can you say I try to be positive <laughs> and also say that gecko has no function? What shall we read next? Uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's K-I-M-M-E-R-E-R. So yeah, if you like this episode, uh, it would be cool if you could like rate us and tell your friends uh, about us. Like go to iTunes or wherever you can rate podcasts and rate this this podcast, The Plan Book Club, um, as many stars as possible. <laughs> Maybe add some of your own stars and then tell your friends about us because um, this is the best way um, to get more people excited about plant books. Um, tell them about this podcast. Uh, and yeah, where can people reach you guys, Ellen? Uh, I'm Ellen Earhart. You can find me on Twitter at Ellen Earhart. My last name is A I R H A R T. And I am excitedly making the second season, the second full season of Plant Crimes, which will come out in September. Ooh, and you can yay. find that on the, your favorite podcast app and it's just called Plant Crimes. So, And um, yeah, you can reach us, Tegan and me on um, plantsandpipettes.com and our like uh, social media that go with that. Um, that's on Twitter. You can usually talk to me. That's at plantspipettes. And uh, you can reach Tegan on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, we're at plantsandpipettes there. Yeah, or you can, through that, you can also find our other um social media if you want to get in touch with us personally without um and yeah and if you want to give us feedback um on this episode or on the book and so on uh you can also reach out through through there um i would be really excited to hear what you uh listeners think 
about the book or about our opinion on the book. Yeah, and if you have any questions about the complaints we're making about the scientific inaccuracy, please hit up Yoram and he will explain to you all of the background and provide you with a long list of resources. That um, makes me sound like such a mansplainer now that I, I will sit exactly down and explain you how the world works according to me. Okay, no, no but I do think you're going to have to be willing to give some resources if somebody no, yeah, asks I'm, I'm you really why happy, water doesn't have feelings. I'm really happy to like back up my claims with some papers um, and some evidence uh, if you have any questions. Mm. So, yeah, the next book that we're going to read is Braiding Sweet Grass uh, from Chimera. Uh, that will happen in about four weeks' time. So until then, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you. The opening and closing music is from the album Green Ideas from Pine Vogue. You can find the music on Bandcamp where it is published under a Creative Commons license 3.0.